Hello, fellow foodies. This is Dr. Cassandra Quaid, your host for Foodie Pharmacology, the science podcast for the food curious. In this episode, we're going to explore some big questions around how we source our food. Throughout human history, food was frequently procured from the wild, whether it was fish from the sea, foraged from meadows, or hunted in biodiverse rich forests. What once was the norm, though, is now something that's all too often reserved for the wealthy. In my own work on the medicinal food traditions of Southern Italy, I worked with the research team to document countless bitter greens that were commonly blanched and sauteed in olive oil, seasoned with salt, and used as a masterpiece to meals. Nowadays, though, much of that foraging tradition has been lost at the household level, and these antioxidant-laden bitter greens are more restricted to fancy restaurants that keep foragers on staff. My fascination with foraged plants and mushrooms, as well as hunted game, has endured since my childhood, and you can imagine just how thrilled I was to discover our guest for today's show, Gina Ray LaService book, Feasting Wild in Search of the Last Untamed Food. Gina is a geographer, environmental anthropologist, and award-winning writer who has traveled extensively to research a variety of environmental and food-related topics. A National Science Foundation graduate fellow, Lacerva holds a Master of Environmental Science from Yale University School of Forestry and Environmental Studies and a Master of Philosophy from the University of Cambridge. She lives in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Thanks so much for coming on the show, Gina. I'm super pumped to speak with you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. I mean, I, first of all, to all the audience, I just want to say again, this has been the best year for me. I'm finding so many amazing books on food and yours, again, was like at the very top of the heap because as I read it, you were really taking me as the reader on a journey and you had these amazing series of stories about journeys in the world, looking at new landscapes and cultures and countries and flavors. Can you um, maybe introduce the book just by sharing some of the places that you've traveled to for research on this topic? Yeah, so, um, man, I, I go all over the world in this book, um, you know, everywhere from a roadless village in the Highland Mountains in Borneo, which is an island um, in Southeast Asia, um, to the Democratic Republic of Congo, um, to Sweden and Poland, and even to an abandoned um, gun factory in my backyard in New Haven, Connecticut. Um, so, you know, this book really, it, it's very geographically diverse, but part of that uh, is because I was interested in a whole variety of foods that were often only found in specific places. Um, so it required a lot of travel to do. Yeah. And when, when did you first kind of get that travel bug? When did you find your fascination with wild foods and with travel? What draws you out there? Yeah, well, so much of food culture, you know, is very, um, in some ways, nomadic in itself. Uh, you know, the culinary world is one of uh, food ways, you know, being moved around the entire globe. Um, whether that's in the form of cultivated plants that have, you know, begun in one country and then moved to another, 
um, or just cultures as people move, they bring their food cultures with them. So I think the kind of parallels between um, travel and food are, have been there with humans since the very beginning. Um, but for me personally, um, I grew up in Santa Fe, New Mexico, and uh, you know, it was just something that we, we kind of did, um, you know, very much incorporated into the fabric of my childhood. So I'd go out and look for prickly pear, cactus fruits, or, um, you know, edible mushrooms in the mountains, or wild raspberries, um, miner's lettuce. So it's just, you know, a variety of foods um, that we would go gather just, you know, sort of for fun. I mean, I, I found it to be really fun as a kid. Um, but I wasn't a hunter. Nobody in my family hunted. And then um, my dad actually decided to teach himself to hunt. He's originally from Brooklyn. So that was a few years ago. He started to learn to hunt. And a lot of my friends here are hunters. Um, so, you know, that was sort of the seeds have been with me a very long time of uh, being interested in wild foods, um, partially just because I grew up exploring and loving the natural world. Um, and it's sort of I think every kid wants to see what they can eat while they're out and about, you know, whether it's bugs or weeds or something, um, that curiosity. And then the sort of um, beginnings of this book were actually at the grocery store. So, you know, looking at how the price of wild caught fish was so much higher than the price of farm fish. And it just really got me thinking, you know, for most of human history, these wild, quote unquote, wild foods were free for the taking. They were what we subsisted on. Um, it was just sort of this bounty out there. Um, and now, if you want to eat something that's wild, that hasn't been, um, you know, overbred or grown uh, in a monoculture or sort of farmed in, in various ways, um, you know, very industrial ways, that you have to have, uh, most likely you have to have the money or the time um, to be able to go out and get these foods. So, that led me to thinking about how is this relationship to wild foods kind of a parallel to our relationship to wild nature right now as well, um, particularly at a moment when sort of, you know, all the news coming out of the environment world is just very bad. <laughs> um, and it's sort of, you know, like wild nature has never been more threatened. We're going through this mass extinction, you know, every day um, there's sort of another terrible story about the species that we're losing. Um, the threat of climate change. So, you know, it's kind of also for me motivated by what is it in our nature as humans to suddenly really crave these wild foods, right, as as they're kind of on the brink of disappearing. Yeah, that's that's so true and so sad in so many ways. You know, I there is this craving, I think, for the natural world that we feel even if we don't know how to identify it, and um, I think anyone when they're out in nature, kind of that curiosity can spark. And, um, you know, I, I spent a lot of time as a kid as well outdoors and just looking at things and exploring things and foraging wild blackberries, you know, from, from um, around, around our yard. And it's, it's just that, that contact with nature is so special. Yeah, I mean, I think when you look at sort of how our brains developed, you know, they developed to be really stimulated and excited by the act of um, foraging and gathering um, and hunting. So, you know, you kind of get into this flow state, 
you're out there, you're sort of noticing everything all at once, but also specifically looking for certain things. And then you find them and it's like this, you know, spark goes off in your brain. You found that Blackberry, like how amazing is that? Yeah. Um, and you kind of get flooded with this dopamine. So, you know, in many ways, our brains are primed for this kind of eating and this kind of exploration. It's in, it's very much ingrained in us. And, and I think you're right. A lot of what this book for me was about was actually grappling with some environmental grief. Um, and, and I think we're all feeling it, whether we consciously acknowledge it or not, you know, we can all notice the ways that even in our backyards or the places we grew up, there's some things have just changed very quickly. Um, you know, in terms of the natural world that's, that's out there. Yeah, and I feel like in many cases, our access to the natural world is so restricted. And it's maybe an access that we don't always consciously think about. But this has been an, an ongoing issue for humankind. You, you get into this in your discussion of hunting and the history of hunting and the emergence of rules around who is allowed to hunt for game in the king's territory or... You know, these large landholders. Can you tell us a bit more about that and how that historical perspective relates also to today to issues of equity and access to nature and access to wild foods? Yeah, so part of what um, I was interested in tracing with this book, as I mentioned, it was sort of wild foods was a way to talk about our relationship to more generally to nature um, over, over time. <laughs> and um, what I found really interesting was that some of the earliest environmental legislation actually came from kings in Europe who wanted to protect the forests where they hunted game animals. Um, so at that time in the Middle Ages, you know, cuisine for the upper class if, was very meat heavy and meat was very much a way to show your status. Um, so if you could display a wild boar at your banquet table, it kind of showed how powerful and important you were as, as the king. Um, you know, specifically wild boar because they were very dangerous to hunt. So it's kind of very much associated with masculinity and power. Um, and so kings started passing legislation to protect the forest where they hunted these animals. Um, you know, it was a time when, when there was a whole lot of deforestation happening in Europe. Wood was needed for everything. It was sort of the beginnings of um, the, you know, pre-industrial revolution, but this time period when there was a huge population growth in Europe, um, and the forests were very threatened, and so kings started passing these laws, and they had very strict consequences against poachers. So, um, you know, I was reading these historical accounts of poachers having their eyes torn out if they were caught hunting on the king's land, or um, castration, you could be removed from the country, um, or even sometimes sentenced to death. So, you know, it's really fascinating to think about how the earliest roots of environmentalism were very much associated with class and hierarchy, um, and, and also this kind of split between subsistence need for meat and more of a um, kind of luxury item that you, you know, its, it's symbolism is less about just needing to eat and more about sort of class and wealth. Um, so fast forward many years, and these ideas really continue to be part of a lot of environmental legislation. Um, in the U.S. in the 19th century, you had the same kind of split happening where you had sport hunters um, in conflict with market hunters for all the different wild birds that we ate in this country. Um, and during that time period, you had the rise of national park legislation. 
Um, and again, that was very much about going out into nature as a, as a form of leisure, um, as, as something that, you know, wealthy people had access to. Whereas when we created national parks, we, we kicked out the indigenous peoples that were living there. Um, and we, you know, didn't allow sort of poor people to subsist on those resources anymore. Um, flash forward, you know, another 50 years and you have uh, the colonial period in Africa and these same kinds of legislation is being passed there in terms of protecting the forest. Um, and so you wonder, you know, who, what are we protecting these forests for? Is it, is it, you know, specifically for the animals or is it actually for sort of the leisure class's ability to access these wild spaces? Um, on the other hand, you know, in Poland, uh, some of the oldest forests there um, still exist in, the, in a much more um, sort of primeval state than most of Europe's forests because of these kind of laws passed by kings in, you know, the 15th century. So it's a very interesting contradiction um, in that we've created these spaces that are not of equal access to people um, and very much tied up in, in, you know, questions of wealth and privilege. And yet they also work in other ways in, in being able to conserve spaces that might otherwise be destroyed. Um, so I, I found that kind of con contradiction and that history to be really fascinating. Yeah, me too. It's, it really hit home because I was like, wow, this is a, this is an issue that has passed through the centuries and, you know, hunting and fishing and game sports currently are expensive hobbies. There's, you know, they, there's a lot of money that goes into purchase of equipment and, um, mm -hmm, access to those to, to land. Um, and then you also have your, you know, fees and licenses and things like that, which do go towards, um, I guess, funds that help with forest management. But, you know, I grew up in the, in the rural South and I was so fortunate that my dad was involved in agriculture and he knew a lot of large landholders. So as a child, I always had the opportunity to kind of tag along with him and explore these great private land masses, but that was so unusual because many of my friends never had that opportunity to really get out in nature and see those wild animals or hunt those animals or fish. And um, there's just always been this dividing line that's persisted. You yeah. Yeah. And you mentioned something really important about removal of indigenous peoples from their lands. And this is something that's just so incredibly important um, and a major you know, topic within the field of ethnobotany as well is as you, as people are forced out from environments, the knowledge of how to use those environments is also lost. Can you, can you tell us a bit about what you've learned about the loss of traditional knowledge and how that's impacted the ability to, to go out and find wild foods? Yeah, I mean, you're so right about that. So, so much of this knowledge, particularly indigenous knowledge, um, was not necessarily uh, written down. A lot of it was more of an oral tradition or um, it was sort of, as I like to say, it was learned by the doing of the thing. So you, you learned how to do it or you learned um, something about the landscape just through the act every day of going out and harvesting that thing, that plant, um, or the stories associated with it. Um, so, you know, some, some of this knowledge is never, we'll never really be able to recover it in a way because it just, it was lost when people were both decimated and forced off their land. 
Um, but others of it, you know, I think is it's been a really interesting moment as we are trying to rediscover these things. Um, although again, that has its own sort of colonial implication that it is our desire to go out and rediscover this lost heritage or this lost knowledge, right? So I really, um, there's a lot of work being happened in, happening in the United States um, around food sovereignty for indigenous peoples and Native American tribes really working to rediscover these, these traditions um, for themselves and for their own food security. Um, <clears throat> so there's, there's great work happening around that um, around the country. Um, and maybe we can put some uh, links in your show notes about that um, That's at the great. end. Yeah. But well, um, yeah. Oh, go ahead. Can you, can you also just, just for a point of clarification, describe what is food security and how does that differ from food sovereignty? Yeah. So, you know, I'm actually not an expert in this, but um, food security is the ability to, and they're very much intertwined. So the ability to have access to good, healthy food. Um, you know, I think one of the things that's come up in this pandemic is really people are realizing their level of food security, their access to food is very different across the country. It's another one of these things that we've seen with this um, pandemic of, of inequality across the country. So some people are able to buy a month's worth of groceries and other people, you know, don't have the, the ability to buy a week's worth. Um, and, and so that's food security. So food sovereignty is a slightly different. So just as we might have sovereignty over land, um, over our history, over our crops, food sovereignty is really the ability to um, tie that food security back into your own cultural knowledge and cultural systems and having access to the land to grow these crops um, or to hunt and gather these, these plants and animals. Um, so it's, it's slightly more of a political term in a way because it's about that um, political sovereignty over, over a space and over, to your, over your heritage. Yeah. Well, and that concept also ties into this idea of place and what is local? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I loved your, your, one of the early chapters in your book, you talk about this visit to Noma and how you described a bit about the, the culture of trying to source locally, but in this very haute cuisine kind of perspective, can you tell us a bit more about that and what, what that place is actually, like, what is it? What do they do there? Yeah, so Noma is um, one of the best, quote unquote, best restaurants in the world. Um, it's in Copenhagen. And uh, in some ways, this chapter is a little dated because it was four or five years ago. And I think the head chef, Rene Redzepi, has um, continued to transform his, his restaurant. I think they're doing a lot more um, farming now, actually, at the restaurant uh, as opposed to foraging. Um, so, so Rene Redzepi's idea was this idea of Nordic cuisine. So the, you know, countries of Scandinavia um, and uh, creating kind of, you know, Finland, Iceland, Greenland, the Faroe Islands. Um, so, so kind of coming up with a cuisine for that region. Um, and so it's very much, you know, they talk about lo local food. They do a lot of foraging and hunting of food. So a lot of the foods you eat is wild food. It's a very expensive meal, um, you know, 18 courses kind of thing. Um, and very much an incredible piece of art as well. The experience is, is very, very much like that. Um, so, but, you know, what I was interested in was how this idea of the local can be really relative. So, you know, he's sourcing 
things, sea urchins from far up in the north. Um, and he could get them much closer if he went to Italy, but those sea urchins taste differently and perhaps aren't part of this, you know, quote unquote, Nordic cuisine. Um, so how we kind of um, decide to draw those lines around what is what is local and what isn't, um, you know, another example. So, so they basically don't use any ingredients that they can't find outside of this region, um, which in some ways is that restriction allowed him to be very creative in the kind of food that he was cooking. But it's also like, where do you draw that line? So, you know, they might use potatoes in their food because it can be grown there, but potatoes originally came from South America, um, where you had, you know, thousands of different varieties. And that food was then eventually sort of domesticated and, and bred into this, or the standard potato variety that we might find around the world. Um, so I think when you start looking into food history, you realize that there sort of is no such thing as local. Plants and animals are always moving around the planet, migrating. You know, we're seeing that happen on a much more rapid scale now with climate change, where species are moving, um, you know, north or south, depending on their temperature needs. Um, and, and then in terms of food and cuisine and culture, those have also always been this very much this mix mosh of things. And so you have wars and you have um, migrations and things like that that bring new flavor profiles into cultural cuisines. Um, so it's never ever a static thing. And I think local like that can also be um, kind of have that fuzziness with the definition. How do you decide what is local? You know, and, and is eating local our goal? Yeah, no, that's, that's such a, that's such a great point and a great example with the potato because I'm, my mind is drifting to one of the places where I've done a lot of field research and that's in the, um, the Shari mountains in, in along the border of Albania and Kosovo. And there they have a huge cultivation tradition around potatoes. And if you are an outsider coming in and saying, well, what's the most important crop, the most important local crop? You're like, oh, it's potatoes because there's just so much energy and effort and it forms the basis of their local economy. But that's not a local food. You know, it's something that's, that's been brought, brought out. And you think about tomato sauce also in Italy, mm -hmm. you know, tomatoes are a new world plant. So not really, right. you're not going to find tomatoes in your historic Roman cuisine. Um, so that is a really interesting point, how we draw those lines about what belongs and what does not. Yeah, and I think that that really ties into the wild food conversation as well, because we think of, you know, wild nature as being in some ways like static and there's native plants and there's, you know, this is how the ecosystem is. Um, and so this is the wild food that's accessible. But really, when you look along you know historical lines you see that these ecosystems are constantly shifting and changing um, and we've we've spread up that sped up that cycle quite a lot um, you know and now we have so many invasive plants um, and the question is is it actually better to eat them uh, versus kind of local native plants that might be having a harder time compete um, competing you know, or, or should we actually help those invasive plants thrive because they're actually the ones that are doing well under new condition, ecological conditions that, you know, humans have created, whether that's pollution or disturbed ground or climate change, um, you know, so it becomes a really interesting question of what is even wild anymore and yeah. is there ever such a thing as pristine wild, was there ever, you know, or is the wild the sort of immutable concept of change that, um, you know, is much more complex than we realize. Yeah, this, this goes back to the whole debate over 
you know, the existence of virgin forests, there are some scientists that argue that mm-hmm. there have not been virgin forests since humans walked this earth because humans are great engineers of, um, of land masses and have been very intentional in promoting the growth of certain species and removing others. And we've really shaped a lot of our, what we would perceive to be as a natural, pristine environment's actually been shaped by mankind for, for millennia. Right. And it, and it kind of is cool because it decenters us in some ways um, as being just another piece of this larger ecology, right? So even though we've had massive impact, it also shows that we're part of this fabric, that we're not some sort of separate species, separate from wild nature, but that every one of our actions is ecological and that we're constantly being impacted by our environments as well. You know, I think the shift to urbanization has been a huge change for humans, that we're not really sure how to deal with even yet even though it's been happening for you know uh, 5,000 years we've been city dwelling species but um, you know for 100,000 years we weren't we we were out walking in the forests and the savannas and I think back to your earlier point of access to nature you know we just feel better when we're outside it's like it's this biophilic thing that we evolved to do Um, and you know, I mean, some of my happiest travels have honestly been with some of my friends who are also ethnobotanists and just going on these amazing nature hikes and kind of munching as we go along because we mm-hmm. know which plants are edible. And um, and it's like you said, there there is this kind of reward center that goes off in your brain. It's like, oh, I got a little snack of this, a little snack of that, it's that, that search and find joy um, that you have. And it's it's interesting to me how in the urban environment, how much energy we've put into really trying to keep our environment very sterile. I'm thinking of like the classic American lawn where we spray mm. it with all kinds of things so that we only have one species of grass that grows. We want it all uniform and cut exactly the right height. When if we let it just alone, there could be all kinds of interesting species popping up there, including a lot of foods like dandelion and and Mm -hmm. chickweed and I mean, lots of these other tasty things. Um, Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's for me, you know, I'm such a nerd on all levels. So uh, part of what I was researching in this book was even like the aesthetics of um, gardening. So looking at how, in England, you had a period of time when the wild, quote unquote, wild look was actually like very popular and very in vogue. And it was actually at a moment when a lot of urbanization was happening and people started kind of missing those wild landscapes. And so they ended up recreating them, um, you know, but but yeah, it's really fascinating to me how you can trace these cultural ideas over time and they get kind of reproduced. And, and so the lawn was uh, very much about recreating that pastoral idea of having sheep out in the field, right? And so that's kind of this idea that got moved from England to the Americas to this, uh, you know, this kind of this very colonial thing, actually, in a way of, of having this, um, this pastoral scene. So, um, yeah, anyway, as an aside. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's great. But, it's, 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 it's fascinating, though, like you said, this desire for how to bring in the wild. And, you know, some of the things that I've, that I've just been fascinated with when I read books and especially I want to get to the green turtle mm-hmm. example now, but 
also just reading Mark Kolansky's book on cod and thinking about these amazing, vast fisheries and the abundance of life that we had in our oceans. And that today, I don't know, I can't even quite fathom it in my mind. And you did a beautiful job of illustrating this when talking about those kind of colonial um, notes and records that were taken as, as people went to the West Indies or the Caribbean. Can you tell us a bit more about that and kind of how that story plays into um, this larger theme of abundance and what we did with that abundance? Yeah. Um, uh, sorry. <laughs> Just lots of things. You're bringing up lots of things. Sorry, I know. I, like, I, yeah. I have a bad habit of like many different questions in one thing. So. No, no, it's a great habit. I mean, I think it's, it's another beautiful contradiction in humans is that we really crave diversity, right? We always, we want as many different choices and possibilities and um, experiences. And yet we also really love control. And so the ability to kind of domesticate and keep things um, simple uh, is, you know, like having just a lawn instead of a whole, you know, ecosystem and outside our doors is, is helpful in terms of that part of ourselves that wants that ability to control the wild, you know. Um, so a lot of what I was looking at throughout this book was sort of that contradiction in human nature of sort of um, the desire to kind of tame the wild and then also the desire to um, really indulge in the wild. Um, and the, the green turtle is a really good example of that. So when Columbus um, arrived to the Americas, there was an estimated something like 30 million green turtles um, in, in the Indian, uh, in the Caribbean. Wow. Um, so 30 million green turtles. I mean, there were so many of them that um, ships would use the sound of, of these creatures swimming in order to navigate towards, towards islands. And, you know, there were amazing descriptions from sailors that said that they looked like little rocks and they were afraid the ship was going to run aground on these turtles. Um, so just really incredible. And, and green turtles, you know, there's reports of them being, you know, five or six feet across in diameter, weighing hundreds of pounds, um, and just super, super massive. So, they actually were the food source that allowed for the colonization in many ways of the Caribbean. Um, they were a frequent food source on pirate ships um, because the turtles could be taken alive and then turned upside down on the ship. Um, and so a kind of a fresh source of meat when you were doing ocean crossings um, or got tired of eating fish, they were very fatty. Um, there was, you know, rumors that they prevented uh, venereal diseases and, um, <laughs> that they, uh, you know, that they had a high source of vitamin C, so they could be anti-scorbric. So um, anyway, very important source. And then as the slave trade began, they were also partially because of how green turtles migrate um, from the Caribbean often to uh, the west coast of Africa, which kind of mimicked this triangle trade. So a lot of enslaved people were fed um, turtle meat on, on the Middle Passage. Um, and then once they uh, were brought to the the Caribbean. Um, turtle meat was a huge source of protein on plantations. So we really use this wild food source as kind of the 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 protein that fueled merchant capitalism and um, and slavery. Um, 
which to me is fascinating. And then as that got going um, and more and more green turtles were harvested, it actually became an elite food in England. And so you couldn't have a civic banquet without serving green turtle soup um, because it was this kind of rare, exotic, and supposedly very delicious food. Um, although the soup was mostly like Madeira wine and cream and spices. So I'm not sure how much... Um, <laughs> how much turtle you actually tasted. Um, and then interestingly, eventually it became even sort of more domesticated and you can, you could find Campbell's turtle soup. Um, so more and more turtle, not necessarily green turtle, but turtle was harvested to create soup up until I think like the 1940s or fifties. Um, and, and it became a cheap thing again. So it's really, for me, it was really interesting to see how these different foods, you know, went from something that was like subsistence and associated with piracy and and enslavement and then became this elite food and then sort of became like the housewife domesticated food there was even a mock turtle soup that people would make out of cow bones to get that sort of same gelatinous quality um so uh i've completely forgot your original question oh, but, yeah. oh yeah I mean, no, right. oh, is... the, the ecology so so we basically we over a couple hundred years we decimated these millions of turtles, um, green turtles. And what's interesting about green turtles is they're very much a keystone species in um, the seagrass bed ecology and coral reef and beach ecology. So, um, I mean, I loved learning about this. So kind of like in uh, grasslands, terrestrial grasslands, and you have ungulates who eat, on, eat that grass. Um, when green turtles eat grass and other sea turtles, the grass actually, um, kind of shoots forth with more nutrients. It's kind of like a, a response from the plant that it's being attacked. So it's the next growth, uh, growth spurt is actually going to be more nutritious and more abundant. Um, and so the pattern of grazing that green turtles has can actually create more abundant um, seagrass beds. And then those are the home for all kinds of different juvenile fish species, sea urchins, um, all kinds of different um, uh, species. And then uh, when, when, because green turtles are huge, they eat a massive quantity of grass. When they defecate in the oceans, that is very nitrogen rich. They have a special enzyme to break this down. And then that actually fertilizes coral reefs. Um, and then when green turtles lay their eggs on beaches, a lot of those eggs don't actually hatch. And so they degrade into the beach. So you're actually getting more nutrients into the beach, which helps with um, various beach vegetation and prevents erosion. So this amazing, you know, super complex system um, and as we decimated the green turtles, that kind of fell apart, right? So suddenly you didn't have as much um, fertilization of the coral reefs. So those died back a bit. Um, you had the, uh, the beaches started to erode. Um, and then um, the, the sea urchins died off, so which had been one of the most abundant species um, uh, in the oceans. But as, as the seagrass beds got less Kind of nutrient dense the sea urchin side off so really just this fascinating um you know web food web um that we disrupted with our own desire to eat green turtle yeah it's it's so amazing how intricately tied all these different elements are and and what the consequences have been um i mean i have no idea how difficult it is to find very large sea turtles today but i i i would not imagine that there are that many left yeah yeah 
Yeah, I mean, you can see this with a lot of different ocean species, fish species, that those those massive specimens that we, you know, saw pictures of in the past just don't exist anymore. Mm. Um, Even lobsters, right? You have some, you have a story about lobsters as well. And... Yeah, I mean, apparently there used to be, you know, like routinely like 25, 30 foot, pound, 30, 30, not foot, sorry, 30 pound <laughs> lobsters, massive. Yeah. Um, although I was just reading about the, the squid, um, some sea squid that can get up to, you know, six feet long. So they're still out there, the massive creatures. Yeah. Um, but yeah, in many ways, the human impact has been to reduce, you know, biodiversity over and over and over again. Yeah. Um, in other ways, though, we, you know, we just don't necessarily notice the biodiversity that we've created. So someplace like Central Park has way more plant species and bacterial species in the soil than you would find, and bird species, than you would find in a sort of natural, pristine New England forest, right? Because we've brought in all of these different exotics um, and, and introduced all these things. So in some ways, it's a more biodiverse space. Um, but it's, is it, it's less wild, perhaps. And so I'm also very curious on how we define what wild even means in that context. Yeah, absolutely. Well, one of the things that you've done a lot of is, is this travel and experiential learning with different people, different cultures, different cuisines. Um, right now, many of us are restricted with travel because of COVID-19, but down the road, like, what are some of the pieces of advice that you could share or offer to people that are interested in trying and experiencing more wild foods, but how can they do that in a safe and sustainable and, and culturally respectful way? Yeah, it's such an important question, um, particularly because a lot of our sort of most delicious um, wild edibles are uh, are you know increasingly threatened by the demand for them. So, um, in a lot of places, ramps are not you know reproducing at the rate that they need to be to be harvested sustainably. Um, this is definitely an issue for a lot of wild mushroom, wild mushrooms. Um, and part of what this book looks at is how when these wild foods, which are very irregular and sort of not always predictable, how that what happens when those interact with larger global capitalist markets where they become, you know, more like commodities in, in a larger economy, as opposed to something that you would just go to your backyard to, to find. Um, so, you know, I always tell people it's all about just educating yourself. So if you're interested in starting to do this, and, and you know, I, my belief is that this is our heritage as humans, like we all deserve to eat wild foods. They're incredible. They're delicious. They're far more complex in terms of taste um, flavor, you know, nutrition than anything that we can grow on ourselves. Um, and yet we have to do it responsibly because we don't want to be like those, you know, 18th century gourmands eating green turtles till they're nearly extinct. Like we don't want to do that. We don't want that to be our legacy. Um, so what I tell people is, you know, if you're interested in learning to forage for your first year, don't pick anything, just go on foraging walks and start to create a relationship with these plants, start to see what you notice of, you know, what's edible, where they grow, what they grow next to, um, what seasons they seem to be more abundant, what years they seem to be more abundant, because as you know, wild processes and cycles are not, are not regular. So some year you might have a ton of mushrooms in the forest, 
the next year those mushrooms are using their nutrients to help the trees grow and so you don't have as many um, you know available fruiting bodies and so I think for me part of what uh, eating wild is about feasting wild as, as the name of my book is um, is actually about creating this relationship to nature less than it is about you know eating this weird thing or that strange new exotic flavor it's it's really about how do we start having that relationship to a place and to the ecologies around us um, and and then again it's another question of access so who has access to these wild spaces um, you know it's such a complicated thing I think for environmentalists because on the one hand, we're like, we want everyone to go out and use these places. We want everyone to connect to wild nature. And on the other hand, there is that concern of, you know, how much impact can a place take before it starts to become something else um, and feel sort of less wild or less pristine, or you're just dealing with kind of the basics of humans in a place, you know, like needing to find parking spaces and leaving garbage behind, um, which, you know, I've noticed here in Santa Fe with the pandemic, so many more trailheads are crowded, more crowded than they normally are. Um, so it's this really, really interesting thing. So I'm, I'm actually, after writing this book, increasingly interested in how do we kind of rewild our food systems. Um, as you pointed out, the backyard is an amazing place to find wild edibles. So lamb's quarters, dandelions, you know, all these very nutrient-dense, um, often bitter flavors, but delicious um, you know, so I think for me, this book is is about getting people to just open their eyes to um, both our relationship to wild nature as being, you know, very much part of this large system, and then also to be as fueled by curiosity as you can, um, while recognizing that it's actually like a reciprocal relationship with these plants and animals. It's not just one of going out and eating or going out and destroying. It's its really like, how do we have mutual thriving? I love that. That's such a great phrase to leave this on is this idea of connecting to nature, observing, being patient in your observations, and then mutual thriving. That's 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 a great phrase because I think that's something we can all aspire to. Thank you so much, Tina, for coming on the show, um, and huge congratulations on such a fantastic work, and uh, I can't wait to read about your next set of travels. <laughs> Thank you. I, I appreciate coming on. It was really a fun conversation. I'm Dr. Cassandra Quave, and you've been listening to Foodie Pharmacology, the science podcast for the food curious, recorded on Zoom from home during the COVID-19 isolation period. You can subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts or any major podcast streaming service. You can also find a full list of episodes with links at our website at foodiepharmacology.com. You can find Gina's book, Feasting Wild, with any major bookseller. We've got an awesome lineup of topics and shows for you this season, so be sure to subscribe. And please take a moment to share the link to the show with your friends and leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts. Thanks so much for listening. Stay healthy out there, and I'll see you next time.